I'm glad you're here tonight. Thank you for coming. What a good-looking crowd on a Wednesday night. Give yourself a hand, would you? Good to have you in the Lord's house. Glad, glad that you're here. Well, Miss Callie is going to give us a uh, report on her missions trip. Uh, she was in Albania, the Philippines, and South Africa over the past nine months. Ray, she did something I couldn't do. I, there's no way I could have done that. Uh, half the time she was sleeping in a hammock, and uh, boy, I couldn't have done that either. So, uh, but I'm glad she's home, and I want to thank you as her dad for praying for her and supporting her. And tonight, I just ask that uh, you give your attention to her and open your heart to the Lord and allow him to speak to you through her. Would you give Miss Callie a big hand as she comes and shares tonight? Hi, everybody. It's good to be back. Um, before I start anything, I feel that it would be best to go to the Lord. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and what you've done in our lives. I thank you for your grace and your love that flows so abundantly. I thank you for this church and what they mean to me and what they mean to my family. I thank you for the givers that we have and the prayer warriors that we have. I pray that you would bless them as they steward their gifts. I pray that you would bless this time that we're sharing tonight. Bless the words that I have to say. And um, I pray that everyone would be able to benefit through the great adventure that you've brought me on. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, secondly, I feel like I should thank you guys. Um, you, know, you came alongside me um, before I left, and you supported me as I left and as I made the decision to do what's not traditional and to not go to school for four years after high school, and um, to step out in him. And I want to thank you for praying for me. You know, I've come to find out how powerful prayer is. You know, it changes people, and it changes lives, and I felt your prayers, knowing that I had people back home that were praying for me every single day, gave me a lot of peace, and it made the hard times a little bit easier. So I want to thank you. You guys are awesome, and I definitely, well, I don't want to say definitely, but I probably would not have made the decision to go on the race if I wouldn't have been brought up in a church like this. You know, this is a different church, and I'm really thankful for Kavanaugh and you know, the things that we steward and the things that we strive for. And I don't want to say this because they're my family or my bosses, but we have some really good leadership here, you know? And um, the way that they spend time with the Lord and the way that they steward their gifts and the way that they use them to advance the kingdom and to bless our church is really incredible. And having been abroad and having been to a bunch of different churches, you know, I've seen the difference that it makes when the leaders are going to God first and then pouring into the people. So. Thank you, guys, wherever you are. Um, and so I'm just going to explain a little bit about what I'm going to do tonight because I didn't want to just share the things I experienced because as much as me and my squad poured into other people, you know, I was poured into a lot. And the things that God taught me from the things I experienced are really what changed me. And so 
I want to kind of give you a glimpse of what I saw, but I want to take you to the depths of my heart and show you the things that the Lord has done in me. Um, so about a year ago, as I was preparing to leave for the race, you know, I was thinking about what I want my heart to be going into this thing, you know, because my heart has to be rooted in something holy and something of the Lord rather than just, woohoo, I'm going to go travel for nine months and, you know, tell some people about Jesus along the way because that's not what it was about. Um, and so there were kind of three things that I wanted to get for myself out of the trip. Um, one of them was learning how to love people boldly and extravagantly and differently. I heard a pastor say one time that someone asked him what was wrong with him because he loved people so well and he had the opportunity to say, Jesus, you know, I wanted Jesus to be wrong with me. So that was the first thing. The second thing I wanted to figure out was what God's calling for my life was. And while that's still not exact, it's definitely a lot closer than it was. And the third thing I wanted to do was learn how to live a life of reckless abandon. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, she's the missionary martyr Jim Elliot's wife. And she wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor. In that book, there's a quote that says, there's now one thing I strive for, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all of my energy and strength into it. And so I wanted to adopt that for my life. You know, I want to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord. I want to be able to live like this instead of like this, you know, laying everything out for him. And so that was my heart going into the race. And once I got to Albania, I soon realized that the things that we want to change in us probably aren't going to happen the way that we think it's going to happen. So um, in my mind, I visualize it like this. So if I'm on the top of a mountaintop and I'm standing right here, and I look out, and I see another mountaintop, and that's the next goal I want to get to. That's the next um, holy thing that I want to pursue. And so let's just use the example of love. I want to love people better. So to get from this mountaintop to that mountaintop, you know, in my head, it's like there's a trolley system, and I just get on right across, and I'm there, right? But that's not how the, the Lord changes us, you know. He takes us down the mountain and into the valley and we sit there and we go through trials until he brings us back up onto the next mountaintop victorious. Yeah. And so I learned the hard way <laughs> that, you know, just like diamonds don't become diamonds, like coal doesn't become a diamond by just saying, hey, you become a diamond. You know, it's through heat and pressure. And in the same way, we don't grow in the Lord unless we go through heat and pressure and we sit through hard and holy things. And I think that's something that, I mean, I could learn to be better at. And as a church, that's something that we need to be better at. We need people who are going to stand up and say, hey, yeah, I'm going to sit through hard and holy things. And I'm going to wait and go through the trials and go through the hard stuff so the Lord can change me. Because, you know, if you just sit there and wait for the trolley to come, it's not going to. You have to take the step out and go down the mountain. Um, so I got to Albania, and my team was in a town called Duras. It was a port city in Albania. And if you don't know where Albania is, like I was before I left, um, it's right above Greece and right across from Italy. So just a visual. So I was in a port city, 
and we were working at a church. But a lot of our first three months were kind of asking the Lord what he wants from us. And I think that was a really cool thing to happen for the first three months. You know, it got us into the mindset of seeking after the Lord and the things that we did. And so we taught little kids, we taught elderly people, we taught women's, but my heart was in the youth group. I loved the youth group. And in getting to preach to them and teach to them and just love on them and get to know their hearts, I saw a lot of Jesus in them. And it really ignited a bunch of passions in me. Um, And so there were kind of four main passions that were ignited in me in Albania. Um, The first was a passion for the local church. I mean, you guys know I grew up here, and so I have a love for the church, but I didn't realize until I got into a community that didn't have any Christian influence just how important the local church is, because we have the big C church, you know, the body of believers, regardless of denomination or theological standpoint, and, you know, we can unite and we can come together and do great things, but most of the work is done through the local church. You know, that's God's body and we're God's hands and feet and we're the ones who are supposed to go out and do the thing, you know. And so Albania is an atheist nation. You know, they hardly have any Christians, you know. I got asked, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm a Christian missionary. And they said, they still have those, you know. They were just astounded, and it broke my heart, you know, because people know about God, but they're choosing to reject him. That's how Albania is. And so that little church in that community made the biggest difference, just being a light, you know, and that doesn't mean that everyone just fell on their face and said, yes, I commit my life to the Lord, but you know, they were changing things, and they're changing the atmosphere, and they're planting seeds, and so the local church is so important, it's so important, and the second thing I got ignited for is my generation, it's you guys, and, you know, we need people who are going to step up and say, yeah, I'm all in, and Jesus, you're worth it, and I'm going to step out of what's culturally normal, and I'm going to move away from things that the world loves because, Jesus, you're worth it. And, I mean, I know generations before have been, you know, seeking out revival and wanting it to happen, but we need it now. That's the third thing he he made me passionate about. And I think they go hand in hand, you know. It hasn't happened yet. And... It was that way in Albania. It was a very, very spiritually dry place, but I feel like it's that way here, too. You know, the cultural tide is changing in America. Things are different now than they were when my parents were kids and especially when my grandparents were kids. You know, things aren't, you know, religious or Christian at all. And the choices that people make reflect that and the decisions that are put in place in our government, not that I want to get into that, are, you know, they reflect that. And it's going to take a generation of believers stepping up and saying that Jesus is worth it for something to change. And you guys, like, the Lord has made you to be zealous and passionate about holy things. Sorry. And he's made you to be joyful and energetic. And he's put something in you that other people don't have. 
you know? If revival happens, it's not going to happen the way it has before. It's not going to be another great awakening. It's going to be different. This is a technological age, and you guys are ingenuitive, you know? It's, it's on us to change things. And so I just want to put that on your hearts. I hope you pray about that. I want to charge you to change things and to step up and to say Jesus is worth it because something can change here in America, but we have to do something about it. It's not just going to happen, you know. We have to pray about it, but we have to step out too. Um, and so that's a huge thing that the Lord taught me. The fourth thing he taught me in Albania is that I'm super passionate about studying and teaching the word. I mean, what an opportunity we have as believers to teach the word to people. And my mom says it all the time, you know. She wants to memorize scripture because what if one day we don't have the written word anymore? What if one day it's taken away? And so <laughs> she's memorized Second Timothy, and she said she's got that book. So no one memorized that one. Memorize a different book. But... <laughs> um, but that's such a cool thing that the Lord has given us. And if we pray for understanding, he gives us understanding. And so the really obscure passage that you read in Leviticus, and you're like, I have no clue what this means, you ask the Lord for understanding, he's going to give it to you. And so that's such a cool thing that we possess as believers, to be able to teach people the written word. So a lot of passions were igniting in me in Albania. And I think that was a very beautiful thing to happen the first three months, because down the road, it led me into things that I wouldn't have been able to do if he wouldn't have moved in me in the first three months. Um, gosh. So moving on to the Philippines, um, I, was, I was ready to go, and I was excited, and I was pumped up about the things that the Lord had, you know, put in me and done in me over the past three months. And, you know, there's this thing that our squad leader, so the group of us were called a squad, and a squad leader is someone who has done the world race before, but they've come back to lead us. So they're experienced, they kind of know what they're doing, and so we're like, help us, and they help us. You know. And so she was telling me this thing as we moved on to the Philippines, and she said that everyone has tanks. I'm saying this because it really impacted me, and I think it might impact you as well. So we all have a spiritual tank, and a physical tank, and an emotional tank. And we have to figure out what fills those tanks and what empties those tanks because we can only serve at our greatest capacity and love at our greatest capacity when those tanks are full. So you have to figure out the best way that you seek after the Lord, um, if it's worship or if it's reading the scriptures or if it's being in a really intentional community. You know, you have to figure those things out. You have to figure out what fills you physically and what fills you emotionally so that you can best do the work that the Lord has called you to. And so having my tanks full going into the Philippines seriously changed the game, you know, because there were definite days in Albania where I was just dragging, and it was hard to go to ministry. Like, guys, it's hard to go to ministry every single day for nine months. You get tired, and, like, it wasn't easy, and I don't want to convey that at all. Like, I want you guys to know that it, oh, oh okay, I thought it went off. Um, I want you guys to know that it wasn't easy because that's not realistic and that's not the reality of it. And I don't want to paint this to be some beautiful cloud nine experience because that's not what it was. This was life that we were living. 
and it's the same as life here except for I was over there and I wasn't going to school or doing normal American things and we didn't have good food. Um, but, you know, that was an aside. Anyway, so we get to the Philippines and we had a 30-hour bus ride to get down to our ministry location. That was terrible. I do not recommend ever doing that. You know, when you go on a mission trip, you are on a budget and they made us take that bus and I wanted to die. I'm pretty sure there was a chicken on there and we were going down these windy roads, island roads. Oh, man. Oh, it was so bad. There were people that were sick, and they couldn't do anything about it, and they were laying on the floor. The driver was really sweet, though. He gave, a, gave us cardboard to lay on the floor on. We had little beds. <laughs> so sweet. Anyway, so we finally got down to our ministry location, and I was really excited about it because we were with three other teams, so there was a lot of new life and energy there. And we were working with kids, and we were doing construction. And... I know I'm a girl, but I really like construction ministry. I think it's pretty fun, you know, because you see tangible results, right? So what we would do is we made this lugao. It's this nutritious porridge, and we would take it into communities and schools where these kids wouldn't have food otherwise. And so we got to feed them, and they probably wouldn't even have a meal that day if it weren't for us going out there. And... While that was heartbreaking, it was such a cool opportunity because not only did we get to feed them, but we got to love on them. And we got to say, you know what? Do you know why we're here? It's because Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that he called us to go here and to tell you that, you know? And I think it's true of all kids that they're more open to accepting Jesus. But these kids especially just embraced it with open arms, and they wanted to know more about God. And that was so cool to see in these little nuggets. And then we would play tag right after they got saved, and so it was a celebration. Um, and they would just koala bear you, and they would stay on you until you left. Um, you know, they don't get the love they deserve. And so being able to go there and love on them, if just for 20 minutes, I think made a huge impact. Um, at least on my life it did. I hope it did on theirs too. Um, so we worked with kids, and we also built a church, like an entire church. A bunch of girls went out there with machetes and started whacking on banana trees. Yeah, it was a forest, guys. So we cleared the forest, we laid the cement, and we built the church. And that was the coolest thing ever, to give people a place to worship. Back to Albania, I'm passionate about the local church. And to be able to put that in a community was the coolest thing. Um, we got to go to the celebration where they opened up, and they gave us a little plaque thing, which we live out of backpacks, so we couldn't take it with us. But it was a nice, it was a nice uh, gesture. Um, and so that was, a, that was a really good first half of the Philippines. But halfway through, we had to travel back up to Manila. We got plane tickets this time. We paid out of pocket. We weren't about to do that bus ride again. Um, so Manila is the capital, and we went for a debriefing period, which is just a time where our entire squad gets together and we get to rest. And I think rest is so important. I mean, it talks about it in the Bible. And you know, to be rejuvenated and to be ready to go and to be ready to do ministry for the Lord, sometimes you have to rest. And I found that in rest, you know, it provides different ways to seek him and it provides different ways to see him. And, you know, God is everywhere. God is in the little daily things. 
And when you have rest, you can really see that. You know, you can see him in the mundane tasks and you can see him in the things that you say and the things that you do. And during those times, you actually realize how much Christ has been rooted in your life. And so those times of rest are super vital. But when that week was over, we were supposed to go back down to our ministry site. Um, But the bus company was on strike, so we couldn't go down there. And then once they were off strike, there were bombings. And then there was a typhoon. And we just couldn't go down there. And then it was Christmas. And so they weren't running on Christmas. And so we were stuck in Manila. And we were wondering, you know, why would you do this, Lord? But let me tell you, God always has a plan. And he's never going to lead you into something that, you know, he doesn't have a purpose for. And so we were sitting there like, why are we here? I got deathly ill on Christmas Day. It was terrible. I'm sure mom was freaking out. Um, And, you know, it just you know, was no fun. We're like, come on, God, seriously? I could be go, I could be down there playing with my kids in Tacloban City, you know, but you have me sitting up here. Well, two days later, this Australian family that was living in the same place that we were said, hey, we're going to this place to do some ministry. Why don't you come with us? And so we went and we pull up and the first thing I noticed once I got out of the car was the smell. It was absolutely terrible. Like, I didn't want to breathe in. I was trying to do the whole breathe through your mouth thing. But, you know, you don't want to get the fumes in your mouth. So it was just bad. Um, But as we were walking up, he was telling us the story of this place. And it's called Smoky Mountain. It's literally a mountain of garbage. It's the biggest dump in Manila. And they call it Smoky Mountain because um, they used to burn the trash. And so the smoke would come up from it but there is a community living on top of this pile of trash. And I've seen poverty, but I've never seen poverty like that. You know, there are little kids, they didn't have any clothes, and they were running around on mud and manure and glass. And their parents couldn't do anything about it. I'm sure they wanted to, but they couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, their houses were made from maybe like a garbage sack and a piece of cardboard, and if they were lucky, a sheet of metal. It was not suitable living conditions at all. They didn't have clean water. There was sickness and disease running rampant there. And it was terribly, terribly, terribly heartbreaking. But I learned a few things from that experience. Um, One of those being that we're extremely negative here, you know, We have everything we could ask for. We have a roof over our head, and most of us have a car, and we have whatever food we want. We have Chick-fil-A. You know, we have clothes and shoes and clean water. We can take a shower, you know. We have all of that, yet we still find things to be negative about. I mean, I'm not speaking about you guys. I'm speaking about us. Like, it's me, too, you know. And these people who have nothing find a way to be joyful because they have the Lord. That's the only hope they need, but that's the only hope they have. You know, and so they cling to that, and they're joyful because of it. I mean, mom and dad can attest to that. They're the nicest people ever, aren't they? Yeah, Filipino people are awesome. And it doesn't matter that they don't have anything. So 
I learned a lot about positivity from them, you know. I kind of check myself now, you know. Come on, Callie. You have everything you could ever ask for. Stop being negative about this. Um, and I also learned a lot about how we treat people here. So there, these people are basically homeless. They don't have anything. They, sorry. They don't have anything. And, you know, we don't go over there and question them. And we don't say, well, why are you in this situation? And what bad thing did you do to get here? Are you addicted to drugs? Did you... Um, commit a crime like why are you here you know we don't do that we go over there and we love them right so why would I go to downtown Fort Smith and see someone and try to analyze their problems because Jesus died for all of us he didn't just die for the person who was brought up in church and saved at five and his parents are preachers and he's going to seminary seminary right now to be a preacher like he didn't just die for that guy he died for those people too and so the way we treat them matters. And if we don't see them through the Lord's eyes, then we're doing them a huge disservice, you know? And so not only should I love the people that are over there in the Philippines who don't have anything and not question them, but I should do the same to people here. Um, it shouldn't change based on geography. The way I love people shouldn't change and the way I treat people shouldn't change just because they live in a third world country and we don't. And so having those lessons learned um, we went back to Tacloban City, and we were there for a couple of weeks. That was where our ministri first ministry location was, by the way. Um, we were there for a couple of weeks. We got to say bye to our host family, which was really sweet because we loved them a lot. Um, and then we came back up for PVT. And I want to thank you guys again for not only sending me, but for sending my parents. You know, I don't think I could have gone nine months without seeing a soul that I knew. And so it meant a lot being able to see them. And I mean, it wasn't like the most fun week ever. We didn't go like, ride roller coasters or something. We were doing really hard ministry and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but I also got sick and I was tired. We took lots of naps. That was our bonding time. <laughs> um, but I was really thankful that they were able to come and um, the hearts that they had going into the ministry that we were doing because it was tough and I know my dad highlighted on it a little bit but I want to say some things about it too because it was probably the most imp impactful ministry that I did while on the race and it was only two nights of ministry so as he told you it was through an organization called wipe every tear and what they do is they offer hope and an escape to women and lady boys who are caught in sex trafficking and they're stuck in this industry and they don't have a way out and they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel because they don't know that there is one. And we're able to go in and say, hey, you know, there's a hope and there's a way out. And so they offer free education and free housing to anyone who's willing to come, which it's really scary to come. It's hard to leave because people have tried that before with them and they've just led them into deeper slavery. And so it's a big risk for them to take. And so being able to convince someone that this is the real deal and this is worth it and we're not just, you know, pulling their leg, it, that's a hard task. And so we would go into the bars and we would call them down. You go like this because this is offensive. It's like calling a dog. 
So you go like this and call a girl down and you just talk to her. You let her know that she's seen and that she's loved and that she's special. And there was one instance that just really stuck with me. So our guide was formally in the bars and she was formally caught in this slavery. But she has freedom now, so much so that she's willing to take us back into those bars and go back to the place that held her captive for so long. And she took us into the bar that she worked in. And I know that was terribly hard for her. I think it was the first time she'd been back, right? Yeah, it was the first time she'd been back. And we walked in and it was a really small one, maybe the size of the stage. And there was a little stage, it was elevated about this high, going like this big that they were standing on. There were maybe eight of them or something like that. And when we walked in, they were playing really, really, really good karaoke music. And if you know anything about me, you know I love I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. And like every single time I'm in the car with mom, I play that and I play Bohemian Rhapsody. I have choreography too if you ever wanna see it. Um, but she hates it because I've been doing it for the past 10 years and I turn it on, turn it up, and she's like, Callie, come on. But she can't do anything about it because she's driving, haha. <laughs> um, so anyway, they're playing I Will Survive. So of course, I walk in and I'm singing it. I have my mic up, pointing at the girls, you know. Um, just trying to be fun and just joking around. Well, they thought it was funny enough to call me up on the stage. And I mean, we're Free Will Baptists. Like, we never been in a bar anyway. <laughs> but you're calling me up on stage? And I was like, oh, no, no, it's fine. And they're like, come on. And then our little guide was like, go, go. And I was like, OK. And so I go up there. And, <laughs> and another piece of information about me is I am really, really white. Like, I can't dance at all. And so I gave it my best shot and I taught them some of my favorites. I taught them the shopping cart. <laughs> They've never seen these before. The lawnmower, uh-huh, the credit card. Oh yeah, don't kick me out of the Free Will Baptist Church because I danced on stage. Um, but you know, they thought it was funny. I'm sure in their heads they're like, this girl's wacko. Um, these are terrible dance moves, but I'm really hoping that they added it to their choreography. So, um, But there was this one little girl, and you could tell that she was different from the others because she was really energetic and really joyful, and she had this huge smile on her face. It reminded me of my best friend um, from back in Waco, just a big smile. And, you, you know, you could tell she hadn't been there for long. And so we just really headed off. She was really taking to my dance moves, so I called her down. And I was sitting here, and she was sitting here. My mom was sitting here, and my dad was here. And we just started talking, you know, just small talk, little things. And it hit me, oh, my gosh, this girl is so much like me. You know, if the circumstances were different and we were back home, you know, we could be best friends. You know, she was... Like, so cool and so fun to be around, and we were interested in the same things, but the difference is she was born into a poor family in the Philippines, and I was born into privilege in the United States. 
and her family was so poor that her mom and dad had to decide to send her into the bars to be a sex slave. And, you know, that's a big difference. And we were sitting there, and she asked me the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you get older? And in that moment, I think the Lord verbalized through me something that I had never realized myself. And um, I held out my hand, and I had her hold out hers next to it. And I said, you know, these look the same next to each other, right? But if you hold it up closer, you can see that there's a fingerprint, and everybody has a different fingerprint. And she is special, and she's unique, and the Lord has made her to do things that no one else on this planet can do. And I told her that, and I told her that I just want people to know that. Like, I want my entire life to be dedicated to people knowing that the Lord has something special set aside for them. And just like the thing about the poverty um, on Smoky Mountain, you know, Jesus died for her too. And he died for her and the pimp selling her and the man buying her for the night. And we have to treat them like that. And we have to see them like that. You know, um, I wrote a blog. Thank you to all of you who read my blogs. It really meant a lot to me. Um, but, you know, about changing our lenses on the way that we see the world and, you know, stopping seeing things with prejudices and biases and starting to put the Lord's eyes on and starting to see people the way he sees them because everyone's either a brother and a sister or they're potential brothers and sisters. And when we see the world like that, everything changes. It's a total game changer. You know, the way we love people is differently. The way we talk to people is differently. The way we treat people is differently. The way we talk about people is differently. We aren't going to go talk and say bad things behind people's back because the Lord has made them special and he's made them different. And, you know, that's definitely something that is hard for me. I think it's a struggle for most people, especially most girls, you know, we just say things and it's so easy to be so critical, you know, but if we see people the way that the Lord sees them, then we see the things that they're really good at and we see the ways that the Lord has blessed them and the way that he has gifted them. And, you know, that was just a huge thing that he allowed me to learn through that experience in the Philippines. Um, and so moving into South Africa, I think my heart was completely changed. And it was a really sweet three months because the Lord had refined me so much that I was able to put into practice the things that he had taught me. And a lot of our ministry was what they call Ask the Lord Ministry, ATL. And so our entire last month, actually, we would wake up every day and we would go to the Lord and we would say, what do you have for us today? And evangelism was really laid on my heart. So we would go into Cape Town, downtown area, and we would just start talking to people. We would start loving on them, and we would live boldly, and we would share the gospel boldly. And that's something that I hadn't done before because it's not something that's easy to do in America. You know, it's not easy to go up to someone and say, you know, hey, 
I love you because Jesus loves you and there's something different that he can offer you and there's a freedom and there's a hope. You know, you can't, well, you can, I, I hope we do, but it's harder to do that, you know, here than it is there where you don't know anybody and you just walk up to somebody and you're like, hey. And so that was such a cool thing to experience, to be able to go up to people and love on them. And I got to pray over a ton of people, a ton of like Muslim people even, you know. They didn't just automatically you know, abandon their views and their values and the things that they had been taught their entire lives. But they were open enough, and the Lord spoke through me enough to allow me to pray over them. And that's planting a seed. And even if I didn't see the fruits of my labor, I know that the seed is planted, and my job is done. <laughs> and so being able to go out and being able to actually share with people what the Lord has done in me, because, you know, it's good news, and it's news that we should proclaim and news that we should share. And if the Lord has changed us enough, then it'll just flow out. You know, it's the center of every conversation you have, and everything you do just naturally gravitates towards the Lord because he is in every single part of your life. You know, we aren't supposed to com compartmentalize our faith. You know, it's supposed to be permeating through everything, and it's supposed to be in your life at school and your life at home and your life doing your extracurriculars as much as it is your life at church and your life when you're doing your quiet time for however long you do it. And so the Lord taught me a lot about being bold and stepping out in South Africa. And maybe the most that he taught me there was through my sweet hosts. Their names were Vanessa and Nazim, but by the first night they had us calling them Ma and Pa. They were about my parents' age, but they had kids that were already grown up and they had kids of their own. So there were a bunch of grandkids running around. The youngest one was two, the oldest one was 14. So that was cool because we really got to form relationships with them because we lived in their house. But Ma and Pa taught me a lot about hosp being hospitable and about loving people and about caring for people. Um, because you know, Ma has really bad vertigo. She has this sickness and she can't stop it and you know, it keeps her up at night, and it makes her really sick. But someone comes over at 1 a.m. or 6 in the morning. That happens in South Africa. And they have really loud voices, too, like probably louder than mine. And so they come banging through. Anyway, Ma doesn't care. She's sick, but she's going to go in there and turn on the kettle and make them some tea. And she's going to sit there and talk to them for as long as they need to talk. And that taught me a lot because it's so easy for me to be selfish with my time, especially my free time, because on the race, you know, some days we didn't get a whole lot of it. Um, but their openness to love people and care for people where they're at absolutely changed me and changed the way that I want to be and changed the way that I want to welcome people in because they just love people so well. And they found the things that they were passionate about, and they went after them wholeheartedly. Pa used to be a Muslim, and he was converted when he was a teenager, and now he's started a Muslim ministry in their community. And him and his brother, who are also converted, they go out, and they seek after people, and they show people the light that they have found. And so just learning from them and watching them do life taught me so much.
Um, so that's the race in a whole, but there were some things that I learned not in a very specific place, but over the entire time. So I was on a squad of 50 people, 18 to 22 year olds from all over the states, and we were all very, very different. And they were the only people I knew that A, spoke English, B, understood American terms and jokes and everything. And see, they're the people that I lived with and did ministry alongside for all nine months. And there was a huge learning curve at the beginning, learning how to love them well and learning how to be in community with them. But it taught me a lot about how the church is supposed to be and how community is supposed to be. Because having intentional relationships with people isn't saying, hey, do you want to go coffee with me? Or, hey, do you want to hang out this time? Like, it's not trying to hang out with people, and it's not being nice to them when you see them. It's, it's different than that. It's being the church, and it's going from laughing with people to crying with them, and it's praying with and for them, and it's absolutely going alongside them and doing life with them. It's carrying their burdens. It's loving them through their hard things and, you know, through their inadequacies because we all have them. And, you know, intentional community is so much different to me now than it was before I left. I mean, we have good community here, and I have good community at Baylor, but it's different. It's different when you're a praying community. You're seeking the Lord together, and you're asking him what he has for you, and you're calling each other higher. You're saying the hard things, and you're talking about the hard things, and you're asking the hard questions, and that is absolutely different than some churches. You know, I think our church is different than a lot, but we still have our flaws, and, you know, we're supposed to be brothers and sisters, not just acquaintances, you know, and we're supposed to act like that. We're supposed to interact with every single person as if they're my brother, you know. I'm supposed to treat everyone like I treat Zane and Whitney, you know. It's supposed to be different, and I learned so much about that, and I think moving forward, that's something that I will absolutely implement in my life in every single stage of my life. That's something that is important, and I think that's something that the Lord teaches us, you know. If you read Acts 2, that's what it's about. That's the church. And if the church isn't loving every single other member of the church, then it's not functioning properly. And so I learned a lot about community, and I learned so much about the Lord's faithfulness. I think if, if I could say there's one thing that I learned the most about is that God is faithful. He's faithful all the time. He's faithful through every single situation. He's faithful down at the valley, and he's faithful on the mountaintop. And he's the one that you can go to in both places, and he's always there. He's always there, even when nobody else is there, even when nobody else agrees with you, even when nobody else wants to step out and stand up for him with you, he's gonna be there. And he has a plan, and his timing is perfect, and we could never begin to fathom the things that he has for us if we step into life with him. So that's the race. <laughs> um, so thank you again for standing alongside me in my journey, and thank you for allowing me to share with you tonight.
I hope I kind of conveyed what happened over the past nine months. Okay. <laughs> we, we, have, uh, we have seven minutes, so if there is a question you were just dying to ask Callie, we might have time for one or two. Anybody have just a, a question you've got to have an answer to? There's one right back there. You have to know the languages. How'd you do that? Okay. Everybody spoke English except in Albania. How'd you do that? Yeah, so we can move over here so I can see you. So in Albania, they didn't speak English. Only the younger people did. So maybe if you're 20 and younger, you spoke English. But the older people didn't. So we had to learn how to communicate without speaking the language. So Albanian is a very, very difficult language to learn. So there was no way that we would have time to learn the language. I mean, we picked up hello and goodbye and thank you, things like that. But other than that, we kind of had to play charades. A lot of times, luckily, there was a younger person with us, and so they kind of helped us interpret. But other than that, it was kind of like a pointing and <laughs> no. So we did a lot of things like that. Does that answer the question? Okay. Yes, ma'am, right beside here. What did you eat? What did I eat? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> in Albania, we had good food. By good food, I mean carbs. I literally, I ate bread or pasta almost every single day in Albania. And then in the Philippines, I ate rice every single day. They eat a lot of rice. It was kind of gross. I kind of got sick of it. But it's the way it was. But our food in South Africa was really good. Ma, the lady that we lived with, cooked for us. And so she would fix us yummy American things like mac and cheese or wraps. But she would also fix us some South African dishes. And they were delicious. She was an incredible cook. Mm. So, but they also had a lot of restaurants that America has in both the Philippines and in South Africa. Like they had McDonald's and Wendy's and stuff like that. So. Good deal. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Okay. So in Albania, like I said, they knew about Jesus, but they didn't believe in him. They just thought that he was a figment of our imagination. Like we just made him up and he doesn't actually exist, and you guys are stupid for believing him. They were very hardened to the idea of Jesus. In the Philippines, they were really open to it, but a lot of them were raised Catholic, and so they were born into Christianity. And so they believed that they were saved when they were born and baptized it as an infant. And so if you would get in a conversation with them, they would say, oh, wait, maybe I have never been saved. You know, so you really had to ask the questions and probe them because if you just ask, are you a Christian? They're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but all, there were all of our all of our Uber and cab drivers were Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. But there yeah. were people in the Philippines that I encountered in the more rural villages that had never heard of Jesus. I mean, especially little kids. They had no clue. But there were some adults that didn't know. Um, in South Africa, there were, like, sects of very, very passionate believers. There's a Hillsong Church in South Africa, 
And so there are some people who are on fire for God there. But there are also a lot of people who, like in Albania, were really hardened to Jesus. And they thought that it was stupid to believe. And it was kind of how it's getting to be here. It's like that new age spirituality. And I'm spiritual but not religious. That kind of thing. Yeah. Good deal. School. In South Africa? Okay, so I actually forgot to hit on this, so good question. Um, I was in a fourth grade class, and there were 40 fourth graders in the one class, so huge class sizes, and they don't really take people aside who have behavioral issues or learning disabilities, so it was just a huge hodgepodge of people crammed into a tiny room, and um, they stab a lot in South Africa, and so the kids were, like, taking their scissors and going at the people next to them, like, no, 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 stop. And I actually had to teach that class for a few days because my teacher just didn't show up, and they don't have substitute teachers there. And so I was in charge of 40 fourth graders. That was interesting. But they learned a lot of English because that's what I'm good at teaching. They didn't learn any math. Um, <laughs> um, but it was a really cool experience to just get to love on them and tell them why we're here and just plant seeds in their lives. And they really got attached to us. It was really hard to say goodbye. They were all crying. I had a couple girls attached to my legs. I was trying to walk away. And, I mean, they're fourth graders. They're not that small. Um, so, yeah, that was the school. Oh, I forgot. I have some pictures to show you guys. So this is part of my youth group in Albania. This was part of the girls. We went out to a park one night for youth group. So that's them. Um, this is me teaching little kids in Albania. Admittedly not my favorite part, but um, I thought it was a good example of me teaching and Lidiana, the lady next to me, translating. These are some of my girls from one of the communities in the Philippines. They were super sweet, and when they figured out I had an iPhone, they wanted to take lots of pictures. Um, this is on Smoky Mountain. That's the little girl that just attached to me, and we walked around on some dirt paths. Um, little kids in the Philippines like to wander off, and they like to take you with them. So I got to see some of their houses, and I got to go to a couple cool waterfalls. Um, this is also at Smoky Mountain. Before we fed them, we had to wash their hands and feet because they hadn't been washed, and it took some serious scrubbing. Um, I honestly couldn't tell you the last time that they've probably been washed. Um, so that was a very humbling experience. This is when my parents got there. That was my first time in a nice bed in a long time. I'd been sleeping in a hammock for three months, so I was really excited. Um, this is at PVT, and this was in Angeles City where we did our ministry. That's our guide that went with us. She was super sweet. And what you can't see is behind this building is the walking street where over 12,000 girls are being sold into sex slavery in, there, in the bars there. These are the fourth graders. <laughs> I think this picture speaks for itself. Um, this was a Muslim guy that I pr prayed for on the streets in South Africa. His name was Nazim, if you want to keep him in your prayers. And this is Ma and Pa. 
Vanessa, Nazim, they're the best. And this was my squad, the 50 crazy people that I traveled with for nine months. So that's what I've got.